In the spirit of full disclosure, I'm going to start with a confession today. I am terrible at waiting. I'm terrible at it. And the past two weeks, this Advent series has sort of illuminated that for me. Although I have to tell you that it was just a few days before Advent began, I was sitting alone, having a quiet conversation with the Lord in my head and in my heart. And I was just telling God that in a particular situation in my life, I was tired of waiting for an answer to a question. I was complaining, if I'm being completely honest. But I wanted to make sure that God knew that in this scenario, there seemed absolutely no reason to make me wait. That if I simply had an answer to my question, I could be far more fruitful and productive in my life and my work. And it was at about this point in the rant that I was interrupted when I heard someone say, Emily, the doctor will see you now. If you didn't catch that, the irony is that I was having this conversation with God in, of all places, a waiting room. Waiting is difficult, isn't it? And in our day and age, in this culture, we don't have to wait for much. And so I think that makes waiting even more difficult for us. I was talking with a friend about this, and she said, well, I'm not that bad at waiting as long as I have an assurance of what the outcome for my waiting will be. If I have an explanation for why it is I'm waiting in the first place. And I, I thought about that, and I realized that if you have a young woman who's longed to be a mother and she suddenly finds out she's pregnant, she would like nothing more than to have that baby in her arms immediately. And yet understanding the process and the importance of the nine-month pregnancy and the promise of the child that will be hers at the end of it, the wait is more bearable. It can even be enjoyable. No matter how bad you might need a vacation, the wait for it always comes easier once the destination has been selected, the plans have been made, the plane tickets have been purchased, right? Because the how of how it's all going to go down is revealed. I think this is even true in traffic. So we are far more prone to be patient if we can see the cause for our delay. We're stilled and we're sobered if we see an accident in front giving cause to our wait. But if we're simply stuck in a line of traffic with no visible reason for the cause of the congestion, we become impatient and incredibly frustrated that our plans and our schedule have been thwarted. So waiting really never is easy, but it does seem that we're much better at it when we have assurance of an outcome or at least an explanation for why we have to wait. The problem is when we don't have an explanation, the temptation is to go looking for one. And this is something that I've been thinking about during this Advent season in looking at the story of the nativity. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, my family, that was myself and an older brother and my parents, we would celebrate Christmas together as a foursome on Christmas Eve. We would go to church where we would sing carols and we would hear a reading of the nativity from Luke chapter 2. Then we would leave church and we would go home where one of my parents would take us kids back into a bedroom and read to us, again, the nativity story from Luke chapter 2. And we tried really hard to pay attention to the story, but we knew the whole reason we were back there was because Santa was in the living room leaving gifts that we would be allowed to come and find once we heard Santa's signal, which was the ringing of a bell. That was unless Santa was quicker than Jesus, in which case we had to wait until the reading was over with. But the next day we would get in the car and we would go to grandparents' homes where again we would celebrate with feasting and with gifts. 
and another reading of the Nativity story from Luke chapter 2. You're getting the drift here. In any given year, it was a whole lot of Luke. And Luke's account of the Nativity is the one we're the most familiar with. It's a wonderful narrative, and it gives us Mary's perspective and her response to the Incarnation. And yet Matthew gives us Joseph's story. And I'm so glad he does because while we don't know a whole lot about Joseph, he's only mentioned a few times in the Gospels, I think Joseph provides us with rich insights into this business of waiting that is foundational in the season of Advent. And so I want us to look at that together today. But would you join me in a word of prayer before we do that? Patient and gracious God, we understand that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge and that in your perfect time and manner, you illuminate your truths and insights to us, your children. We ask that this morning you would open our hearts and our minds in new ways to your word, that we might see you at work in our midst and understand your great love for us once again. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. So Matthew's account of Joseph, it's fairly succinct. It's just seven verses long, and when I read it, I have a hard time not seeing the story played out in frames, sort of like a movie, with each scene illuminating where an explanation was needed or desired for the characters involved. We just heard the story, but I want us to look at it. So take a look, starting at verse 18. Matthew writes, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We can stop right there because we're one verse in and already an explanation seems needed. Mary and Joseph were just two normal Jewish kids for all intents and purposes. Mary was likely a young teen while Joseph was probably no likely older than 19 or 20 years old himself. And their families arranged for them to be married. Now this doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph had no knowledge of one another prior to this. In fact, it's just as likely that the two of them were consulted in their engagement. But betrothal was no casual dating scene in this first century culture. And so upon reaching the agreement, the families would celebrate the betrothal with a ceremony and a feast. And at that point, even though the wedding wouldn't occur for another 12 or 15 months or so, the woman was considered to be the man's wife. They would not be intimate or live together prior to the wedding, but in every other way, the couple was married in the eyes of one another and their community. And so Matthew tells us that Mary, Joseph's fiancée, was found to be pregnant. And we come to find out that Mary isn't the only one who finds herself this way. Joseph finds her to be pregnant as well. We don't know how this happens. We don't know if Mary told Joseph or if perhaps he was surprised one morning to see her protruding abdomen as she emerged from her home to embark on her daily activities. Regardless, we know that Joseph finds out. And if we believe that Joseph was like any of us, being a human being, we can assume he wanted an explanation. He knew he hadn't been intimate with Mary. He, he wasn't responsible for her condition. So how could he not want an explanation? In this moment of discovery, I sort of wonder if Joseph started taking account of everything in his life that just seemed to go up in smoke. 
His future plans and dreams seemed ruined. No more honorable marriage or family or humble home with Mary. People would undoubtedly assume that they had broken their betrothal vows, which would be bad, and at the very best, that perhaps Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, but that couldn't have been any great consolation in the greater scheme of things. And what if Mary had been unfaithful? Was Joseph really so naive as to think he knew the type of girl that Mary was? You see, when we lack an explanation, it's easy to make assumptions. And sometimes we make those assumptions of the people we know and love the most. We aren't patient in awaiting their side of the story. Instead, in our desperation to understand what is happening to us, we're tempted to rush to conclusions, even ones that don't align with things we absolutely know are true. And so Joseph, when he doesn't have an immediate explanation or a rational explanation for Mary's condition, he did what I think I might have been tempted to do. He takes matters into his own hands, and he comes up with a plan for what to do next. Are there any other chronic planners in the room? If we just have a plan, then things will move forward. And Joseph does that. Look at verse 19. He says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. If Joseph wanted an explanation, he likely knew that others were also going to want an explanation for Mary's situation when they found out about it as well. And let's be honest, in this particular situation, there's probably only one of two explanations that will really suffice. Either Joseph and Mary had come together prior to their marriage, breaking their betrothal vows and leaving them both subject to punishment according to the law, or Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, disgracing their engagement and leaving herself subject to punishment of death by stoning, which was a horribly painful and public and drawn-out death. The community, once aware of Mary's situation, would likely be disappointed and yet strangely satisfied with either of these explanations. That's a funny thing about our desperateness for an explanation in times of waiting. It seems that we would sometimes rather have a negative, quick explanation than go without one for any prolonged period of time. And so it seems that Joseph, at this point in the story, has some options The text says he was faithful to the law. In other words, he knew his Torah. He knew he had options. He knew that he could not only deny having had intimate relations with Mary, but also initiate punishment for her apparent unfaithfulness. After all, why should Joseph bear the burden of Mary's offense against himself or their community or their customs? The law in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus permitted Joseph to hand his fiancée over to the people to receive her punishment and to wash his hands of the entire situation. And yet the text tells us that Joseph, being a righteous man, determines that there is another way. Quiet divorce. Now, while I don't think divorce would ever be considered a good thing, it it may have been the lesser evil of several bad options for Joseph in this scenario— You see, in quietly divorcing Mary, he could remove himself from her present situation while also returning the dowry that Mary's family had given him. And in so doing, 
he left open the possibility that later on, down the road, when all of this had passed, that Mary could again be betrothed and married to another man, maybe even the father of her baby. I've really tried to put myself in Joseph's shoes at this point in the story. I mean, he's trying to do the right thing here, right? He's clearly an upstanding guy, and he's human too. And interestingly, in the few times we read of Joseph in the Gospels, he never speaks. Not a word. We have no account of Joseph talking. And yet being human, I have a really hard time imagining that with all this going on, there were some conversations, at least in private, where Joseph was asking God some pretty serious questions. I know this is the right thing to do, but will anyone believe me? Well, some think I'm divorcing Mary only to save myself. Will they forever question if I am the father of this child? Will I ever just live the normal, humble life I'd always hoped to live? Despite the fact that he still didn't have an explanation for Mary's condition, and despite the fact that the community would soon know if they didn't already and also want an explanation, Joseph's comprehension and understanding of justice reached beyond the permissions of the law and considered Mary rather than just himself. You see, by divorcing her quietly, I'm sure Joseph thought perhaps he could remove all suspicion of his inability to remain faithful to his betrothal vows while at the same time preserving Mary's life. There was no guarantee of this, but it likely seemed to be Joseph's best option, the one that considered not only himself but also Mary. So in the midst of no great options, and certainly in the midst of no real explanation for what and why and how this was all happening, Joseph resolves that taking action, righteous action, was the best route. And so Joseph has his plan, and no further waiting is necessary to move forward. And I stop at this point in the story and say, isn't it funny how sometimes we combat our impatience in our waiting with what we perceive as righteousness? How could anybody find fault with Joseph's choices here? And yet is it possible that even righteous action can be mistimed or underinformed, in which case waiting becomes still a better option? So keep reading. In verse 20, Matthew says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Okay. So sometimes when we await an explanation, we're given one. We're just not really sure that we like it much. The medical tests are returned. The results are in, but they're inconclusive. Or the employer that you were hoping to work for calls back, but says it'll be a few more weeks before they make a decision about the position. We've waited, and an answer of sorts is given, but... It sure doesn't seem very conclusive or alleviate much of our angst. I'll read into the text here just a little bit, but can't you just see it? Joseph has been wrestling all day with what to do in this situation. 
He's got no explanation of how Mary is pregnant and therefore no explanation to give anyone else. And so realizing his dilemma, he makes a plan. And it's the plan he feels is best for everyone and he hits the sack, hoping to catch a few hours of sleep before embarking upon what I imagine would have been one of Joseph's most difficult days. Delivering a certificate of divorce to Mary and her family. If the community didn't already know what was going on, the pronouncement of divorce would certainly clue them into the fact that something was afoot. Rest likely didn't come easy to Joseph that night, and yet, in a few moments of escape from his current reality, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and provides for him an explanation as to what is going on and what he should do in this crazy situation. No divorce. Marry the girl. Yeah, yeah, she's pregnant, and no, you're not the father. Rather, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay. No ultrasound is needed. It's a boy. And you, Joseph, even though you're not the father, you will take on the cultural role of a father in naming him. And in so doing, you will basically claim the child as your own to your community. Oh, and yeah, Joseph, don't give him the name of anyone in your family, as would be the honorary thing for a father to do. Rather, give him the name Jesus. Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Yeah, that's not going to be difficult for a humble guy like Joseph at all. Can you imagine Joseph waking up from this dream? I sort of imagine him being completely freaked out, considering the ramifications of doing everything the angel just told him to do, or thinking, I have got to lay off the late night snacking. I mean, really, if Mary's infidelity had seemed like a difficult explanation to swallow about what was going on here, how much more difficult would the angel's explanation have been? All of the sudden, the seemingly righteous decision that Joseph had made to quietly divorce Mary was trumped by the righteousness of God presented to Joseph through the angelic messenger. And so even before his birth, Jesus begins to present humanity with a new understanding of justice and righteousness, greater than any teaching of the law and committed to a love that considered those even in the lowest of situations. In this case, Mary, who needed Joseph to walk beside her in the difficult journey ahead. So you see, sometimes when we await explanations, we're given them. But often they're not the ones that we'd hoped for or even imagined receiving. They're not always complete, at least in our immediate understanding. They don't tie things up in a neat bow or provide a resolution to our troubles. It certainly doesn't always align with the plans that we've made to expedite the waiting process and get us a solution for our situation. And with that partial explanation, we're left to begin awaiting still further explanation, something to make sense of what doesn't seem possibly right or sensible from our earthly perspective. Now hold that thought, and I'm going to ask you to pause. Because it's interesting to me that at this point in the text, Matthew takes a moment to deviate from the narrative. It's a commercial break from the movie, if you will. And he more or less addresses his first century audience. It's a sidebar where Matthew is talking less to us and more to his contemporaries, his fellow Jews. In verse 22, he steps out of the narrative and he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the midst of this story of Joseph's awaited explanation for all the chaos that's just broken loose in his life, Matthew inserts a message to a group of people who also knew a thing or two about waiting and seeking explanations. For centuries, Israel had put its faith in God, trusting that he would deliver them. But how many times during that waiting do you think they asked, how is this going to happen? Or when will our deliverance come? And I can relate. I go back to the waiting room. Lord, if you just explain how all this is going to happen, I'll wait patiently. We just can't imagine how you're going to do it, so help me out here. And so here in the midst of telling Joseph's story, Matthew reminds his readers, his people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting, that even when there is no explanation, or even now when an explanation is being given, but it sure seems pretty difficult to wrap your mind around, God is present. God with us. His certainty does not waver simply because we don't comprehend or understand his methods, because we don't have the why or the how behind the weight. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of God's law. In other words, in the waiting, God has been and is now working. And he doesn't need Matthew or Joseph or any of us to create an explanation for what he is and will do in his perfect way and timing. And yet when waiting is so hard, when it seems like it would just be so much easier to do if we had an explanation for why we have to wait, I think we're tempted to do this very thing to manufacture an explanation for God. So we offer pat answers or cliche words of consolation to those in the waiting, hoping that providing them with an explanation, we can somehow justify our God while at the same time alleviating some of their agony. It's usually rooted in good intentions, folks. But God does not want or need us to explain the things he has not yet revealed. Because what if waiting is the plan? What if waiting is foundational to the very faith that will see us through these difficult seasons? Theologian J.I. Packer said that the phrase, wait on the Lord, is a constant refrain in the Psalms, and it is a necessary word, for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are, and it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. So when in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. In Matthew's sidebar, Israel is reminded and we are reminded that waiting is essential to our faith. That for centuries, the children of Israel had believed in a God who showed up at just the right time and in just the right way, no matter how dire the earthly circumstances might have been or no matter how inexplicable things might have seemed. 
just as he was showing up now in this story when Joseph was so desperately waiting for an explanation. And with that, Matthew takes us back into the story, beginning at verse 24. He says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now let me get something straight. I don't think that upon waking up from this dream, Joseph was suddenly relieved of all of his anxiety or worry or that all of his questions somehow instantaneously disappeared. I'm guessing he had a lot more questions at this point. A baby conceived by a virgin is the long-awaited Messiah. A baby is the way that God will fulfill the promise he's made to my people for hundreds and hundreds of years. It all seems a little unspectacular, don't you think? It's nowhere on the same level, but it kind of reminds me of the whole Y2K thing a few years back. Anybody remember that? Yeah, yeah, so for years we were told of how we needed to be prepared for the cataclysmic nature of what was going to happen when the calendar turned from the 20th to the 21st century. People spent thousands and thousands of dollars preparing, buying supplies to survive once the world's resources were somehow instantaneously depleted in a moment of confusion of computer systems and networks across the globe. Some even anticipated this would be the perfect time for Jesus to return, and so evangelism efforts were upped at the end of the 20th century. And then, as the clock wound down on December 31st, 1999, and the calendar climactically crawled into the new century, nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing Water was still running, toilets were still flushing, gas lines were still pumping, even eBay and Amazon were still chugging along. And we were reminded once again that we can't always predict the outcome of things. Sometimes we simply have to wait. So even while Joseph likely had all sorts of concerns and questions about the message of the angel, even though he still didn't have a complete explanation as to how all of these things would come to pass, Matthew tells us in this last frame that Joseph does exactly as he was told to do. He takes Mary as his wife, and not just in a moral or a legal sense. I think sometimes we assume that Mary and Joseph's trek to Bethlehem, you know, the one that was mentioned in Luke chapter 2, that that was normal based on the decree made by Caesar Augustus. And yet in that day, in the Middle East, it would have been the husband's responsibility to deal with the family's legal matters. And so Joseph could have simply gone to register for the census on his own and saved himself what I imagine would have been quite a burden, taking a very pregnant wife with him. And yet being unsure of what might have happened to Mary if he left her in Nazareth, Joseph takes her along on the journey his wife, and their unborn child. And in so doing, he fully embraces his role as father and husband. And he is fully obedient to that which God has called him to. And he did all that without having all the answers or a full explanation as to what might come. He might have known God's plan from the angel's message, but how that was all going to go down, yeah, that was a different story. 
one that was going to require Joseph to faithfully and obediently walk step by step and day by day with only as much explanation as God would see fit to give him. Joseph had a lot of waiting yet to do. This morning, I wonder how many of us find ourselves in some type of waiting room, waiting for answers or results or resolution. And whatever the case may be, it's very tempting to believe that if we just knew why we were being made to wait, if we just had a glimpse of what the outcome of our wait would be, this process would feel far so much, so much more bearable. And yet somehow God must see fit to have us wait without explanation in certain seasons. That in the waiting itself, he is accomplishing something far greater than we could ever imagine or understand. And this is really the reminder that Advent brings to us. That in the waiting, God is preparing an answer or a way or an outcome that will resolve any tension and solve any problem this life could throw at us. And our challenge is simply to not allow our need for an explanation to cause us to doubt things we know are true or to get impatient and to start creating solutions on our own, even righteous ones, or to manufacture an explanation for God in the midst of our waiting. What are you waiting for? And how can you, like Joseph, faithfully and obediently walk with God through the waiting, even if you don't fully understand why this season is even needed?